You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. This is Jordan Schrader of the News and Observer hosting this week. And with me are Will Doran, Colin Campbell, and Lynn Bonner, all of the NNO. Uh, we've got a big deadline approaching in the legislature, the crossover deadline. We'll talk about what's going on, what's uh, staying alive, and what's dying in the legislature in advance of that deadline. Uh, and we'll talk about one of the uh, big measures that's being considered right now, uh, the class size reduction bill. Uh, that is uh, drawing some protests and a lot of discussion on Jones Street. And we'll wrap up with uh, a talk about uh, some of the latest numbers that we've seen uh, about voter fraud from the most recent election. Uh, And then, of course, we'll have headliner of the week. Uh, But first, let's talk about some of the bills that are flying ahead of the crossover deadline. Uh, Colin, uh, what's been kind of the uh, uh, the notable ones for you this week? Uh, there have been a couple of different things. Um, I guess most recently, Thursday, uh, there was a bill uh, on a constitutional amendment on the right to work, as it's uh, referred to, which is basically uh, banning uh, unions from having uh, mandatory membership and mandatory dues uh, in, uh, as a requirement for employment with a particular uh, company or industry. Uh, that, of course, is already the law in North Carolina. It has been since the 1940s, um, and uh, Representative Justin Burr uh, wants to make that a constitutional amendment that would go before the voters in November of 2018. Uh, that was one where it's a party line thing. Uh, it was actually an interesting committee meeting because um, the Republicans were not there in the numbers they needed initially. Uh, so at one point during that meeting, you look around and it looks like there are actually more Democrats in the room than Republicans, which I think the Republicans realized because suddenly uh, House Speaker Tim Moore is in the room, which he rarely is during a committee meeting. Uh, the meeting gets put on pause and a few minutes later, a couple other Republican committee members come trooping in and then the bill passes in a six to five vote. But uh uh, one of the magical things about crossover is you get these sort of uh, messed up moments where people realize halfway through a meeting they they don't have the votes or they need the votes or they got to grab people in from another meeting. Yeah, and in fact, you've had uh, some of the usual discipline that you see break down and some bills actually fail, right? Is that a strategy or is that just a product of this crossover deadline? Yeah, or? I think that's a, a product of the crossover deadline is that, you know, when there's a little bit more time to decide what's going to be on a committee agenda – uh, the committee chairs and the bill sponsors can kind of do a head count and make sure they have the, the votes to pass something. Um, this time of year, they sometimes don't have the time to do that. So you have some pretty epic failures like the uh, uh, bill that got a fair amount of attention when it was filed on uh, slow left lane driving would have made it um, sort of a traffic infraction if you uh, were hogging the left lane to just cruise and you weren't actually passing somebody while you're in the left lane and somebody else is trying to pass you so it slows down traffic. Uh, that bill went down in flames in uh, Senate committee this week. Uh, only a few people voted for it. There are a couple of uh, lawmakers, both Democrats and Republicans, who are concerned that uh, this would penalize people who are actually going the speed limit, that perhaps it wasn't necessary because there's already laws impeding traffic. Perhaps it would be difficult to enforce because, uh, you know, how does a state trooper parked on the side of the road with the speed gun figure out oh, that guy's going too slow for the left lane. Let me pull him over. Uh, in fact, one senator had been pulled over in another state that had one of these laws and was none too thrilled by uh, getting pulled over for going the speed limit. So uh, that bill did, did not survive. 
you had not in the category of bills that uh, actually got voted down, I don't think, but uh, a one that was uh, gutted or watered down, at least, was the, the beer bill. Uh, so what what happened there? Yeah, so that was one of the uh, bills this session that had gotten uh, quite a bit of, uh, of media attention, in part because the, the craft beer industry is, is so prevalent in this state and so many people like to drink beer. Uh, so the, the craft beer, um, just uh, the... Brewers, uh, particularly the smaller brewers, were wanting to increase the cap by which they could self-distribute their beers without having to sign a contract with a distributor uh, that would do all the distribution stuff for them. Um, that got into very, very strong opposition from the distributors who have uh, a lot of political clout. They have donated a lot of money to campaigns, and they have some pretty powerful lobbyists, including, I think, uh, former Senate Rules Chairman uh, Tom Apodaca is, was on board with them. Uh, so Chuck McGrady, who was the sponsor of that bill and had been working with the craft brewers to make this happen, uh, came to the realization that he, uh, on the eve of the, the committee meeting, he didn't have the votes necessary to pass the bill out of committee. Uh, so realizing that he kind of had to cut his losses, he decided to run a new version of the bill that stripped out the, the sort of marquee provisions about um, how much you could b- make before you have to get a distributor. Um, and now it's just some sort of technical items for craft brewers. It's helpful to them in some ways, but certainly not in, in a, as big a way as uh, the original bill was. And then that uh, is, is probably going to get passed through committee next week in a much more diminished form. And the craft brewing crowd, I think, is uh, sort of uh, flying the white flag for now, but they're looking at other options, perhaps courts or otherwise, in which they could uh, challenge this law and, and sort of expand some of their brewing capacity. Because I think some of the breweries that were involved had basically said, yeah, that uh, expansion, that second location we were going to open or new market we were going to enter, we're not going to do that now because we legally we can't. Lynn, what are you watching as the uh, crossover deadline gets closer? Well, there's a lot of education stuff flying around. Um, There's been a lot of attention this week on the hard cap for um, on younger for younger students in elementary school. Um, There's a bill that would relieve the uh, school districts from having to live by that cap as it is now. Um, Next year. the uh, class sizes for K through three are going to have to come down. Um, and a lot of school districts are trying to figure out how they can do that. Um, uh, you know, in Wake County, they're talking about um, having classes of 40 kids with two teachers and um, getting rid of some of the specials, as they call them, physical education and, and art, and increasing class sizes uh, in grades higher than three. Um, it's a matter of uh, having enough teachers and also finding enough space. Um, and Wake is, you know, what's happening in Wake is happening in all other counties in the state as they trigger, figure out how to, uh, how to abide by this new law. Um, and this, they didn't, this, they, they, I guess there's a dispute, right, over whether the legislature has really given them the money for this. The legislature says, hey, we've, what'd you do with all that money? If right. you, you know, and the uh, uh, schools say, I suppose, that uh, you've cut us in other ways, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a, this bill has uh, made it out of the House, obviously, but the Senate hasn't acted on it. The reason why there's uh, some pressure now is because um, local school boards are starting to put their budgets together. Together, and uh, they're factoring in these smaller class sizes in K-3 into those budgets. Um, and so it's creating, um, you know, uh, schools and creating some issues that they had not seen in previous years. Uh, 
the Senate just does not um, there's a lot of skepticism on the part of the Senate Republicans that um, schools uh, don't have the money and have not had the money to do what uh, previous budget told them to do. And so um, the Senate has not acted on this bill. And, you know, the the line is that they're still studying it. Um, so we've reached that impasse there. Um, also, a lot of going on with uh, charter schools. There's a bill that uh, where the sponsors had um, a, a press conference that would offer money to some charter schools, charter schools that enroll at least 50% uh, their students' um, low income, offer them money to help pay for transportation. A lot of schools that um, specialize in uh, educating, charter schools that specialize in educating low-income students already offer transportation, but the state does not pay for buses. So often they use... um, older buses that that, uh, the school districts have have, uh, stopped using. Um, And one of the the issues is that uh, when the charters pay for their own buses, um, they don't have money for other things like um, technology and maybe they don't pay their teachers as much. Um, So they're pitching this as a way to improve education um, at those at those schools. Um, lots of charter bills coming up for next week um, that would generally um, sort of it, it help charters expand and um, help them with capital funds such as buses and buildings. Uh, these changes have been um, harshly criticized in the past from uh, by traditional school board, so we'll see where this goes. But um, if some of these bills get out of the House, it would um, really change the landscape for charters and traditional schools who um, so far have been the, um, the only schools that have been able to use capital funds provided by the state. Uh, now you've, uh, another thing going through the legislature is some bills that uh, would change who can do the hiring at uh, the Department of Public Instruction. Uh, it's all part of this turf war between uh, the new superintendent of schools and the State Board of Education. It's sort of an intra-Republican uh, fight here. Um, what's the latest with that? Well, there are two bills that moved at a committee uh, this week that would allow um, the new superintendent, Mark Johnson, to hire more people. He has um, s- sort of argued that uh, the way the hiring is set up now is that he has very few people and little control over the big departments in um, at State Department of Public Instruction because the school board has to vote on and approve some of the hires for some of the major major roles in the department. So um, the uh, Republicans in the House have listened to his pleas, and they have uh, gotten a couple of bills out of the committee that would let him set up um, – an office of early childhood education that he would control, um, that it's not quite clear what this would do uh, and how its job would be different from the office of early education that's already in DPI and uh, the office of early education that's in Department of 
Health and Human Services, but uh, there would be someone who would work for him um, who would be an associate superintendent and would have uh, a staff working on um, early childhood education. Um, They've also um, said that this committee has passed a bill that said he could use some uh, lap salaries to hire uh, some positions um, that also would be under him. Not clear exactly what um, these folks would do um, because the job descriptions obviously aren't, um, aren't well, we're, I'm going to hire somebody to do budget. It's just uh, positions that they have not filled. But there is a, a move to let him hire a, a staff. The concern um, I heard among some was that you know, he's hiring people for a team that might be competing with the rest of DPI, many, the 800 employees there. Um, how this all works out, whether it ends up in the budget, whether the Senate goes along, that remains to be seen. Is this kind of a mini version of what they tried to do in the December special session with giving him more power, giving the, student, the new superintendent more power and taking some away from the the state board of education that that is hung up in court that's still in court uh and it seems as if it you know it's it's a smaller version of that i mean this people who are uh the positions that are there and remain unfilled are still i think the people who are going to be doing uh most of the work i mean there's um you know the a deputy superintendent has, you know, uh, a great amount of influence over, um, you know, what happens with uh, testing early childhood ed and and um, and and what you know gets taught in classrooms. How that job would work with anyone the um, superintendent would hire, um, you know. I'm not sure how all that would work. Well, uh, let's talk about a uh, bill that's probably a little bit of a long shot. Uh, There was a a measure introduced, and we wrote about it a couple weeks ago, that uh, would basically require presidential candidates to release their tax returns. Can't imagine who that would be targeted at, uh, unless you read the bill title, which is the TRUMP Act, right? Yes. Um, Well, tell uh, us about this bill. I think it's called the Tax Returns Uniformly Made Public Act, which obviously spells the Trump Act. Um, And uh, we looked into this for uh, PolitiFact. um, And uh, I guess as a little bit of background, uh, Donald Trump was one of very few uh, major presidential candidates uh, in the last 40 years not to have released his tax returns on the uh, campaign trail. Um, I I believe going back to the 70s, only uh, Gerald Ford, when he unsuccessfully ran for re-election, didn't. Um, So there has been this bill introduced in North Carolina and 24 or 25 other states. It's it's the majority of states now that have a bill like this um, that would say, if you are running for president and you wish to appear on the ballot in our state, you have to make at least uh, five years of your income tax returns uh, public. And, you know, most people do that already. Um, but going forward in the future, obviously, this would be targeted if Donald Trump is going to run again in 2020. 
I highly doubt that this is going to uh, make it over the uh, the crossover threshold <laughs> like some of these other bills we've been talking about. But we looked into it for PolitiFact because it was interesting. One of the claims that the senator that the bill sponsor made about about the act, uh, who's Senator Jay Chaudhry from here in uh, Raleigh, um, he said that you know a majority of North Carolinians want this bill and support this bill and. I thought that was interesting because, you know, obviously North Carolina went for Trump and you would think that uh, maybe a lot of people, you know, who voted for Trump, you know, weren't too concerned about his taxes. Uh, So I looked up the numbers and actually it turns out that he's right. Um, About 60 percent of North Carolinians uh, think that Trump should have released his taxes and about 55 percent think that they're or not necessarily think that there should be, but would support a bill like this becoming law. Um, there are some constitutional questions about the law, which other people have uh, talked about, uh, <laughs> which, you know, it, it's unclear if, you know, even if this were to pass, it would be constitutional. Um, but the public support is clearly there for it. Um, the uh, The catch for it is that there's really only been one firm polling on this issue, uh, which has been public policy policing public policy polling, which is a liberal firm here in Raleigh. Um, but they're, uh, they're polling on, on this when they've done it both nationally and statewide, and their national numbers have been right in the middle uh, compared to some other national polls. So we didn't really see any reason to, to doubt the accuracy of the polling, um, even though they are, like I said, a liberal group. Um, so anyways, yes, yeah, so we, uh, we ended up giving a, a mostly true rating to the claim that uh, most North Carolinians would support a bill uh, requiring presidential candidates to release their taxes to be on the ballot here. So probably a long shot, um, but uh, definitely something that even, you know, now 100 days into uh, Trump's term, uh, you know, people still haven't forgotten about and are still interested in. So that was a little uh, little tax day fact check for us. Um, so, yeah. Uh, well, one other election-related thing before we take a break, Colin, uh, you uh, have gotten some new data about uh, how many people uh, who were ineligible to vote uh, in last year's election uh, did vote. Um, so what is the Board of Elections uh, saying about how common that was? Yeah, so hot off the presses, I have this uh, post-election audit report that was just released on Friday afternoon uh, by the State Board of Elections. Uh, this they looked into um, ineligible voters, which of course was a hot topic in the um, month or so after November's election, in part because uh, the state Republican Party was filing a lot of uh, complaints about individual people that they believed uh, were convicted active felons or uh, had voted twice. Uh, many of those proved not to be um, accurate complaints. Uh, this is completely separate from that. This is sort of done in response to uh, a request from members of Congress for certain uh, records that have been asked of uh, states across the country, as well as a number of public records requests that the State Board of Elections received. So they went in um, and essentially crunched the numbers with all the databases they had available to them and tried to do sort of a in-depth investigation of, of perhaps who had 
uh, voted illegally or inappropriately this time around. So the the main findings of this is they found 441 cases where uh, an active felon appears to have voted, uh, which is higher than the the numbers we've seen in the the past for this. Um, and, and what is the law here? Uh, felons can vote, uh, uh, but not if you're in prison or, or on, on probation, probation of or if you're parole. In prison, yeah, it'd be a little hard to vote. Yeah, but. so you have to pretty much have completed your sentence in order to get your voting rights back, and that's something that's confusing to a lot of people, and evidently was confusing uh, to a number of the folks that were contacted by the Board of Elections to say, hey, were you supposed to be voting? And they said, well, I'm out of jail, so I thought I could vote. But um, So that that's sort of the big deal from that, and as a result, I think the state, the state Board of Elections says they're now going to be putting uh, some more details on the registration forms so that people have to check the box that say, I'm not currently serving an active sentence, um, and then, uh, I guess, check the criminal records in a little bit more detail than they have in the past. So are any of these people going back to jail because of this? Well, the um, records have been turned over to district attorneys in the counties where these people voted, and it'll be up to the prosecutors to decide uh, whether any charges are brought or not. Um, so far, uh, nothing's happened on that front, um, although there has been at least one person where the prosecutors decided not to prosecute, and that's from... Uh, one category of this report, which is voter impersonation. This is when you think about voter fraud, this is always what comes to mind, the idea of somebody going to the polling place, claiming to be someone they're not, and uh, illegally casting a ballot. This happened, according to the State Board of Elections report, only twice in uh, last year's election. Um, and in both cases, it was someone who was uh, claims to have been carrying out the dying wishes of their uh, relatives. So the interesting one, and they include some interesting emails um, back and forth with the person who uh, was uh, found to be involved in one of these uh, voter impersonation cases. This is a woman who is claiming that her mother was a tremendous Donald Trump fan and uh, was very eager to vote for him for president, uh, but she ultimately died uh, on October 26th. And apparently her, her final words were, if anything happens, you have my power of attorney and you be sure to vote for Donald Trump for me. Uh, so her daughter did just that and um, went to the polling place, claimed to be the dead 89-year-old mother, and uh, voted for Donald Trump, which, of course, is illegal. Um, yeah, I should note that is not how powers of attorney work. Yeah, I, I, the phrase sounds really good, and I guess when you're you know on your deathbed, you can, you know, it feels good to give your power of attorney to somebody, but... Um, it does not give you the right to vote as that person. Uh, so that was turned over to the uh, district attorney in uh, the 25th prosecutorial, prosecutorial district in uh, Catawba County. Um, and the uh, district attorney there decided not to prosecute, uh, saying that uh, the woman's actions were done during a time of grief and mourning and in an effort to honor her mother's dying wish. Um, now, it came out during the election there were some dead people who had voted a little more innocently because they had actually voted while, voted they, while were they were alive, alive and then they died. Yeah. Uh, so and that, it turned out, was illegal. Yeah. Uh, so do we get any more? Uh, so there's nothing on, on those specifically because I think that's a situation where it's really up to the state to figure out your vote was uh, cast before dying and that you weren't really eligible on election day. Uh, the two cases that documented here uh, there's that one where the person actually voted in person, and the other one of the two that they're mentioning was somebody who uh, was helping a dying relative vote by absentee ballot, um, and there was some sort of problem with the absentee ballot. So the uh, the person filled it out when they were alive initially, but it didn't work out, and when it came back returned, the person who had voted was dead, so their relative was thinking, well, we, he tried to vote while he was alive, so why don't I 
try to make sure his vote gets in now that I have to refill out the form. Um, and so, again, that was another thing that shouldn't have been done. Um, other highlights from this report, uh, 41 non-citizens who had a green card cast ballots, um, apparently due to confusion there about whether they legally could vote with a green card, which, of course, you can't. You have to be a um, naturalized U.S. citizen in order to vote. Uh, there were 24 substantiated cases of double voting um, where somebody voted uh, in multiple counties in the same election. Um, and then uh, no evidence of any sort of ballot stuffing or equipment tampering. Uh, there were some concerns about the equipment used to count votes in Durham County. That proved to be uh, nothing st- substantiated there. Uh, so that's sort of the, the bulk of this report. It's probably the most detailed data we've gotten um, about this sort of uh, information because they're just way better databases and way better software now to uh, really determine, you know, out of the people who voted who may fall into any of these categories and, and then the investigators sort of take it from there, giving these people the opportunity to prove that they had the eligibility to vote. These people have all been contacted. Some of them uh, were taken out of these numbers because they responded and said, look, here's documentation that shows that um, I do indeed uh, have the right to vote. Um uh, but the Board of Elections sort of being proactive on all this and, and trying to uh, get real numbers out there, given all the accusations of voter fraud that uh, occurred in the last few months. And in fact, that comes in a week when we also had uh, advocates for people who were wrongly accused of, uh, of voting illegally, um, calling for a criminal investigation uh, of, of some of the Republicans who were uh, challenging these these votes and uh, uh, the State Board of Elections saying, essentially, I think that uh, we are going to you know, look into what you're telling us. And so yeah, and so this is separate from that. So that's sort of still to come, as is a look into uh, whether there were any people who voted in other states and also voted here. That data has just come into them, and they're they're working on that. But this was underway long before the, the Democracy NC report and, and doesn't address whether uh, the Republicans who had filed these complaints were in any way um, out of line for, for how they handled it. Okay. Okay, well, we'll take a break and come back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Did you know that North Carolina judges used to ride on horseback across the state to deliver justice? Today, there are more than 1,000 judicial representatives in our state. And through the NCAOC Speakers Bureau, you can request to have a representative speak at your event. Representatives are ready to inform your community about the importance of the North Carolina judicial system, and their visits are completely free. We can't promise they'll show up on a horse, though. Visit celebrate.ncourts.org to request a speaker for your event. Welcome back, and now it's time for Headliner of the Week, where we talk about the most important or at least the most uh, interesting or intriguing person, place, thing, idea of the week in North Carolina politics. Uh, Will Doran, who's your Headliner of the Week? My headliner is John Lasseter. Um, He is the or was the uh, chairman of the North Carolina Economic Development Partnership. Um, He announced earlier this week that he will be stepping down. Um, that's noteworthy because um, I reported in January when Roy Cooper was first coming into office that the Economic Development Partnership um, had changed its bylaws. So basically to make it uh, very difficult for Cooper to replace any of them. Um, This group was founded to spur, obviously, economic development, you know, recruit new corporations into North Carolina, under Pat McCrory, um, and originally it said that the governor could replace any of the members 
uh, that he gets to appoint for any reason, essentially. There are 17 people on the board, and a majority of them, nine, are appointed by the governor. The rest are appointed by the General Assembly. They changed the laws to say that the governor could no longer remove them for any reason, that he could only remove them for essentially serious malfeasance, um, which, you know, obviously all of these people are competent people. There's not going to be a lot of malfeasance going on. Um, And with the way that their terms were staggered, um, Cooper wouldn't have been able to appoint many of these people for years into his term. Some of them, uh, I I don't think he would have even gotten to appoint a majority of his picks until like you know, a couple months before his first term ends. So, um, but the one person that he could still uh, remove was the chairman of the board, uh, which is John Lasseter. So Lasseter went ahead and stepped down um, earlier this week to kind of avoid a fight and, you know, let let Cooper uh, nicely appoint his own person. So, um, you know, yet, yet another kind of power struggle between some of the, you know, Republican power players and Cooper, but it looks like... Uh, he will get to make at least um, a little bit of his own mark on this board. Uh, you know, we'll see how it goes from there. And I don't, I don't believe he's picked a replacement yet. Um, I certainly haven't heard of it if he has. Um, but that's something we'll certainly be watching here. And Lasseter is a Charlotte uh, businessman. He's a Charlotte businessman. Uh, I think he was pretty close with McCrory. Um, I, I don't know if they were friends, but, you know, he's a donor to his campaign and things like that. Um, so. Okay. All right. Well, John Lasseter. Uh, the chairman of the Economic Development Partnership, uh, who is stepping down to make way for a chairman appointed by the new governor. Uh, In the hat for headliner of the week, uh, Colin Campbell, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going with Robin Hayes, who, of course, is the chairman of the North Carolina Republican Party. He uh, jumped ahead of the uh, lawmaking a little bit this week um, and went ahead and announced his uh, nominations uh, for the newly overhauled uh, or in the process of being overhauled uh, State Elections Board and Ethics Commission. This is the sort of second attempt by Republicans to change the composition of the board in a way that uh, takes some power away from Governor Roy Cooper. So instead of his party uh, controlling the Elections Board, this would now be a combined uh, Elections and Ethics Board uh, with an even number of uh, Democrats and Republicans on the board. Well, that, of course, uh, the original version of that passed in December uh, has been put on hold by the court. So the legislature is trying again. Um, and that bill uh, has not gone all the way into law yet. It still is on Roy Cooper's desk as of Friday morning. He has uh, vowed that he's going to veto it, which he's expected to do sometime Friday as it's the, the last day he has uh, to veto that bill, at which point uh, it's likely to get overrided at the legislature. But uh, Robin Hayes at the NCGOP is, is not waiting for all of that to happen before he uh, names his picks for this new board. So he put out a release on Thursday uh, with the names. And there's some notable names in here. Uh, most notably is uh, Francis DeLuca, uh, who is uh, recognizable as the leader of the conservative Civitas Institute. He also uh, used to be on the uh, Ethics Commission. Uh, he actually sued the uh, State Board of Elections with Civitas last year uh, over counting of uh, some same-day registration uh, ballots. Uh, other names on here, Sherry Poucher, who used to be the director of Wake County Board of Elections, and uh, a guy up in Boone named Four Eggers IV, uh, who is a former member of the Watauga County Board of Elections. Uh, Watauga Elections Board, often in the news, uh, over some pretty heated battles over uh, campus voting sites at Appalachian State. So for jumping ahead of that and jumping ahead of the Democrats who have not named anybody for this board that doesn't exist yet, uh, I'm going with uh, Robin Hayes of the NCGOP. 
Okay. Robin Hayes, former congressman and uh, I think two-time party chairman. He's yeah, he was party before, chairman right? once in a while, and then he, he jumped back into the party chair role uh, after the ouster of Hassan Harnett during that sort of rocky period for the Republicans, and now I think is running for another term uh, leading the party and, and will be voted on in June. Okay. Robin Hayes, chairman of the NCGOP in the Hat for Headliner of the Week, along with John Lasseter of the Economic Development Partnership, headed back to Charlotte. Uh, Lynn Bonner, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to choose uh, Congresswoman Virginia Fox. She is chairwoman of the House Education Committee, committee an important role in Washington, but she also has a long history of politics in the state. She is a former state senator um, and knows lots of people uh, here pretty well, and she's an important contact for folks interested in education, an important contact in Washington. She's also a prominent voice for um, deregulation and getting rid of education rules um, that come down to the states. Um, we wrote a profile of her uh, that was published last Saturday, uh, or oh, Sunday, excuse me, um, said that there probably won't be a lot of success for her uh, uh, in, as she tries to get rid of regulations because the Senate just wouldn't allow it. But uh, she's going to be talking a lot about that uh, in her role. So uh, I'm going to choose uh, Virginia Fox. Yeah, now, does she, she want, does she want to uh, get rid of the education department? Or? She, would, she would like to get rid of it. Yeah. yeah. So we have uh, uh, both a chairwoman of the, the key committee and a uh, uh, head of the education department, who are both, uh, you know, very interested in school choice and uh, deregulation, mm-hmm. and uh, so it could be kind of a, a, a dynamic duo on that front, I suppose. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what she does with the the new administration and in in her new role. So Virginia Fox in the hat for headliner of the week, along with Robin Hayes, uh, her former colleague down there, and I believe, and uh, John Lasseter of the Economic Development Partnership. Uh, I am going to go with Representative Virginia Fox. Uh, she's uh, kind of got this key role in D.C., and uh, we'll uh, see what she does with it, but one of North Carolina's more prominent members of Congress. Uh, so as a, uh, a nod to that, and also as a shout-out to Anna Douglas, who's uh, last week, uh, as uh, our reporter in D.C. was this week, as she goes on to a, a new gig at the Charlotte Observer, uh, she wrote that profile. And... Uh, uh, we'll, we'll miss Anna, but she'll still be around now. She'll be in North Carolina for us. Uh, so that's it for Domecast. I uh, hope you join us next week. And uh, for Will Doran, Colin Campbell, and Lynn Bonner, I'm Jordan Schrader. Uh, thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.